Welcome everyone to the seventh episode of Interop Talk. I'm your moderator, Dave Castle, Chief Customer Officer at Health Gorilla and former Executive Director at Care Equality. Uh, with me is Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer uh, here at Health Gorilla and former Director of Clinical Informatics and Interoperability at Sutter Health. Uh, joining us as usual uh, is Jennifer Blumenthal, Director of Product for One Record at Milliman and Telescript and Devin McGraw, data sharing lead at Invitae and former deputy director for health information privacy at HHS. Uh, so speaking of HHS, uh, let's uh, start today with some breaking news out of OIG, which just released the information blocking enforcement final rule. Uh, and, and Devin, can I impose on you to start just to, to give some, some brief background specifically on the type of rule this is and, and what folks can expect as they start to dig into it? Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, so under the 21st Century Cures Act, the information blocking rules, which were developed by the HHS Office of the National Coordinator, are enforced by the HHS Office of the Inspector General. And the Cures Act specified what the penalties would be for violations of the information blocking rule against just two types of actors. So it's a million dollars per violation if you um, if you violate the information blocking rule and you are a certified health information technology vendor, or you are a health information exchange, health information network, if you qualify under that definition. Healthcare providers, which are also covered by the information blocking rules are subject to a different set of penalties. Um, and so consequently, we know that we don't have any penalties yet to be established there. But OIG nevertheless has established this enforcement rule, which is really a set of procedural steps um, that it will take in enforcing the rule against all actors. It, in my view, it's most relevant in situations where the penalties are already established. And that, again, is penalties that apply to certified EHR vendors and, and HIEs and HINs, as opposed to, you know, when there's no penalties available on the provider end, it's hard to see what OIG is going to do from an enforcement perspective. Um, but again, this is largely a procedural rule. All the substance around what constitutes information blocking and, and exceptions and whether you qualify for one or not. Those were all established by ONC, and ONC continues to put out guidance on the substance. But but any anytime you um, can face the long long arm of the law and be potentially penalized, there has to be due process protections in place and a, a sort of set of rules around how those um, proceedings are going to take place. And that's essentially what this rule is. It was initially proposed by OIG way, way back uh, on April 20th of 2020. So really kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic um, and just finalized, just published finalized today. I think, I think that one of the most important pieces of it, I, I know lots of folks, including myself, are still kind of reading through it. I really want to see how how this compares to what was proposed, were any changes made? It doesn't actually look like they made any changes to what they had proposed. Again, it was all procedural, but they did clarify that um, the rule will go into effect 60 days from having been published in the federal register. So what came out today was just a draft. 
clock doesn't start till it's in the federal register, which could happen as early as next week. Might you know it's it's on you know we'll be keeping an eye out for that. And they've also said that they are not going to hold anyone retroactively. Um, they're not going to penalize people for for behavior that occurred prior to the the rule being made having gone into effect. But they also um, reinforced what their enforcement priorities will be and. You know, one of the criteria that they're looking at is um, long, like an extended pattern of information blocking behavior, in addition to um, looking out for things that that could cause harm to patients. Um, and so that suggests to me that if you filed a complaint against someone previously for some behavior, you might want to refile it if it's a, if it's continuing. <laughs> and, well, and actually, that was I was going to ask you that because I, I actually I, I I thought I saw that in in some materials, and I I have not had a chance to look yeah. at them exhaustively. This came out this morning, but I did think I, that I had seen that, and I, and and I was a little puzzled by it because it it seemed like exactly what you just said that you is everything just sort of being the slate wiped clean for for everything that has has already been been complained about. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it, this is what they told us at high tech years ago was that their intention was to open the portal to receive complaints, but that they said early on that they were not going to investigate any complaints that were submitted prior to the finalization of the rules. So I think you're right that that there mm -hmm. is, you know, that I just looked at the website and the, there are now 700 complaints that have been registered through the website, you know, since since it went live. Uh, and I think that, I, you know, I'll, I'm curious to, to look, find out whether HHS is planning on reaching out to the complainants uh, complainants that that submitted their contact information to say, hey, thanks very much, but you know, if this is still bugging you, you should probably resubmit it. I, I think that there's probably a place for a industry-wide discussion of this. You know, yeah. one, once it's clear how this is going to go, because clearly those 700 information blocking complaints, you know, bothered people enough to go through the process to report them. Well, exactly. But, but, you know, if you want to establish that that behavior is still happening, as opposed to something that might have been corrected, and for which OIG is unlikely to act on it again, because they've said, we want this to be prospective in its application, um, you kind of need to refile. Um, and I would wait to refile until 60 days okay. from right. the day of the federal register filing and have and ideally have you know not just oh, i'm refiling my complaint i have no idea if they're still doing this or not but some you know some indication that the behavior has not been corrected um but i but i don't know that they wipe the slate clean like i i actually think that establishing a pattern even though you wouldn't get penalized for past behavior if you want to establish that pattern that kicks it up in the priority, because they'll have a lot of complaints and they won't be able to investigate them all, that you you would want to still have documentation that that initial complaint was filed. Yeah, that's a good point and an interesting nuance. Yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah. Stephen, go ahead. Okay, you made a really good point, Devin, um, which is that this was a procedural rule primarily that it will apply both to complaints. Well, it'll apply to complaints against all three actor types, though it's clearer to see where we're going to go in the two actor types where there is the monetary 
penalty. Um, obviously, and again, when you look at the numbers, uh, the vast majority of complaints of information blocking have been against providers, uh, and they've been by patients or patient representatives. Um, so even though we have not yet established what the disincentives for providers are going to be, the procedural aspects of today's rule will still apply once we know what those disincentives are. Is that fair? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. For everyone who's listening, we're anticipating a notice of proposed rulemaking for provider disincentives around the September timeframe. We'll see whether that slides one way or the other, uh, meaning that we may have a public comment period before the end of the year and potentially, and Devin and I have disagreed about this before, potentially see a final rule in the early part of next year. So we'll Jennifer, you've been been uh, uncharacteristically quiet, and I, I I'm guessing from from our our brief email exchanges earlier in the day that you you might have some thoughts. I mean, this is the best podcast ever. I mean, first of all, how do you guys feel? You are a health information network. You are actors named under the rule. I'm going to turn that back to you, and then we can come back to me. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Actually, I mean, our our business literally is is helping open up interoperability, and we we do have mechanisms for for helping patients if patients uh, come to us themselves wanting to get their information. So I, I'm actually not not concerned from our standpoint. I, I think that that uh, you know we're also probably you know relatively low on the list for those who are are going to complain about information blocking because of the nature uh, of our business but you know i could be proven wrong so what i'm most excited about is the you think about ehrs right certified technology vendors they their go live date for their r4 apis was 12, 31, 22, but let's just call it and say January, the first week of January, right? Most of those EHRs that have certified or listed on Chapel are currently not publishing their fire URLs. So they're publishing like their sandbox or their production base URLs, but they're not publishing the uh, fire URLs for all their clients. And you need those fire URLs to figure out a lot about how the APIs are going to work. So for me, this is really exciting because I consider this information blocking. Like if you do not publish the list of fire URLs, you do not know who the clients are. So the exception to this are like the top 10 vendors. There's over 200 products on Chapel that are listed and certified for the G10 update, which is where you get the, you know, the patient access APIs, the provider access APIs and the bulk fire and things of that sort. So this to me is just ammo. It's just a tool in my toolkit as I'm talking to these EHR vendors about their fire APIs, because now there's something to enforce against that. You know, it's no longer just kind of passing the baton or saying, oh, well, we're not certified yet, or we hit a glitch and we can't do this yet. Like they've had so long. So I'm really excited about that. Um, the other thing that I'm really excited about is, well, actually, I think the problem for what Devin just said was the penalties against providers and what Steven just said about the notice of proposed rules. So what I find with a lot of these smaller specialty EHRs is they're really putting the onus on the their clients, their provider organizations to enable requesters or third-party developers for their APIs. And I don't think that providers are equipped to do that. And it's going to be kind of a he said, she said situation on how to bring a third-party developer live. 
Uh, I think that's going to be interesting from someone who's actually submitted information blocking complaints from the beginning. Um, I'm almost tempted to go back into the portal and see what I wrote and look at to see if the people that I complained against are still, are they still info blockers, right? That That's what I'm kind of curious about. Um, yeah. You know, if you submit the same complaint, you, you know, two times years apart, then you've certainly established a pattern. I think the question is the pattern is going to be the same. It is the um, intent first implementation of the law. The question is, is it the same person not really following that implementation? But I think that the problems that I encountered over the past three years are going to be persistent, especially when you get beyond the top 10 vendors. They've already had their DST2 APIs out. They've had time to work on how to onboard third-party applications. It's the rest of the market and closing that interoperability gap who are really going to struggle with how do they onboard third-party applications? How do they get their customers to upgrade to G10? Um, I've already had a couple of emails from EHR vendors being like, oh, we're so excited to work with you and our sales team because they still need to go sell the upgrade. So there's going to be a long tail adoption to providers in represented by all those EHRs who also are not represented on national networks or in TEFCA, who, I mean, it's going to be a little tough. I'm excited though. I've been calling Devin all week asking her questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jen, you asked the question about, you know, if you're an HIEHIN, what, you know, does, does this make you nervous? Uh, again, when you go look at the complaints that have been registered of the over 700 complaints on the website, only three of them have been against HIEHIN. So it's clearly not been the major focus there. I, I, someone asked me a question today, which I wanted to bring to, to this group and to you in particular, Devin. You know, the definition of what it means to be an HIEHIN under the information blocking rules is pretty inclusive. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has to do with facilitating exchange between unrelated, you know, entities. Uh, yep. I know in my clinical organization, when these rules first came out, we determined that we were also an HIEHAN in addition to being a provider. Uh, you know, and I think that that's pretty common because we allow unaffiliated providers to use our EHR, you know, and in so doing provide network type connectivity. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of providers have mm -hmm. made the same determination. What I wonder is whether that would also apply to payers who are often involved in exchanging data or facilitating the exchange of data between you know, other multiple providers that use their system you know, in, in the process of them doing their, their business. And I'm just curious, have any of you heard anyone interpreting um, the HIEHIN definition as potentially including especially larger payers involved in ACOs and other kinds of value-based care arrangements? I think I read today when I was cruising through the document that it feels like if you if you are a provider actor but acting as a cert technology or an HIE or HIN, then you fall into that category and then you know these penalties could apply. I definitely think it's going to apply for payviders, right? So you think about the CMS patient access APIs, a bulk of them were payviders. So they're, you know providers and payers, but there's a lot of um, health systems now offering uh, MA plans, right? So then they're going to get booked into that. I, my assumption was always the for 
payers, they will be on the hook at a certain point for information blocking, but we have to do the named actors under the law first because their first, you know, trip down interoperability land was with the CMS 9115-F, those fire APIs. So my assumption is a couple of years from now, they'll roll out some sort of info blocking for payers. I guess it's just, do you qualify as another kind of entity right now or another kind of actor? Yeah, I have, I've definitely heard people ask questions about whether health plans, depending, and, and it really, of course, it depends on what kind of functionality. The mere fact that you collect data from lots of other disparate sources in order to, to claims process is not going to trigger. You, you basically have had to set up a network that enables the, the facilitation of data between two entities where your involvement in that transaction is just creating the pipes and allowing that to happen, I think. And, and I also think that the plans are going to try very hard to say that they don't meet that definition. And in the meantime, there's a crap ton of low-hanging fruit of entities that clearly do meet the definition and for whom, while there may not be that many complaints that have been filed to date, there may be an uptick in them now that enforcement or once enforcement becomes available because there's now um, you know, the potential for it to mean something if you file a complaint against one of these entities. I think you got a lot of complaints filed against providers and many of them were in the patient access context um, because there were a lot of patients, sophisticated patients who understood what they were supposed to be getting and they didn't get it and they filed complaints about it. And I don't know this from an exhaustive review of the types of complaints that can be filed, but I, I don't think that the absence of a lot of complaints against the two other types of actors means that you won't see them. Now that you know stuff's getting real, and there's actually investigations that will happen, you know, from at some point, sixty days from next week or the week after, whenever the Federal Register notice posts. Do you think that there's a difference between like high tech and MU enforcement and penalties versus information blocking enforcement and penalties? I was oh, yeah. talking to a provider organization, and they were like, "Yeah, they didn't really." ever enforce those MU penalties? They never doled them out. Is that true? Yeah, I don't know that anybody ever got dinged. Um, people might not have gotten as much of their um, incentive payment as they might have wanted, but I don't know that anybody ever had to pay the penalty that existed for the, for the initial part of the, of the incentive payments. But this is a million dollars per violation. What Set is in stone. If you are found to be information blocking, that's the thing I definitely want to see if they've clarified is how they, how, what constitutes a violation because in HIPAA enforcement land, if you deny a patient their right, the right to their health information, you could have a penalty assessed for every day that you didn't provide information that you were obligated to provide. So that was a daily violation. You violated the rule on day 31, 32, 33, 34, 35. And if, if it was multiple patients, it could really ratchet up. Same thing with you know failure to have a risk assessment. Every day you didn't have one in place, you were violating the rule. So it didn't count once, it counted several times. Breach, you know, breach of data counted by person. 
And so I just don't know how they're, I, you know, it's one thing I'm going to explore is how you count a violation. Is a violation a million dollars because you didn't, you didn't, you know, post your, your, um, your production um, fire endpoints for how many days after you were required to? Does that accrue every day? Is it up to a million dollars? Like, how's, how's that going to go down? Or is it just a million dollars because you, you failed on this? particular point and we're not going to count it on a daily basis. I don't yeah, know. Like to do your analysis, I hope you give us a nice long LinkedIn post that we can reference. <laughs> I want to know if an interference is an API call. An API call. Say what you mean yeah, by what, that. What do you mean by that? Well, if you think about like, if you think about the workflow, like how many different, there's a couple of API calls when you're requesting via those fire APIs. So like, are you going to count every single API call as an interference? And can you just count that up and you really rack up the, the monies there? I would think so. I think, uh, I think uh, OIG should consider that. <laughs> I guess it depends Not on- Not one API there. call. There's multiple API calls going back and forth, depending on which workflow you're utilizing. It may, maybe it depends on just how egregious they think you are and how much they just really want to crater your company. Uh, you, you know, I guess we'll, we'll see. I have seen some very, we saw this on the payer side with the payer patient access APIs. We saw some very interesting interpretations of the smart on fire spec with a lot of customization around that. We are also seeing that um, with the EHR vendors, not just with the patient access, but with bulk fire. And there's a couple of calls that are happening. Those could be each an interference, a single interference. I want to know the answer to this. It, it, it actually, it is a fair question. It, it will be interesting as we dig into the details to, to see if, if, in fact, they have addressed that and, and if so, how. You have to assume that OIG is going to do a webinar at some point and, and open it up for questions, but who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's uh, <laughs> shift gears away from million dollar penalties and information blocking, uh, and uh, talk a little bit about Tefka and Fire. And and first up on that front, uh, uh, one up Don Rucker, former national coordinator at ONC, uh, has been making the rounds, and he's been talking about Tefka. And and you know, on, on the one hand, his he's entitled to his views, right? And and on the other. Uh, because he is uh, a former national coordinator, uh, those views are are garnering attention. So, uh, putting it out there, uh, what what do folks think of his complaints? And and Stephen, if you wanted to to briefly sort of summarize what some of his positions are, that might be helpful. I mean, I've talked to Don about this personally on a couple of occasions, and he's written a few different uh, blog posts and letters to uh, HHS. And, and I think he, the core complaint that he has is that we should be doing all of this on fire, that, that he interprets the, the version one of TEFCA uh, relying on document-based exchange as being, uh, as including only non-computable data, which I think we could certainly argue about, um, and really not being worth worth the time 
to to implement Tefka on anything other than than fire. You know, and I think all all of us agree that that fire is is the future. That fire provides all sorts of additional functionality, uh, supports additional use cases. Uh, I think has has tremendous benefits uh, over and above or as a supplement to document based exchange. But but as as we've had clarified from from ONC, you know, Tefka will support exchange of V2. It'll support exchange of documents. It'll support exchange of fire. Uh, it will support all of that. It's a trust framework. There are technical components for sure. And, and version one that we've seen of the QN technical framework does not reference fire directly. But I think the, the RCE and ONC have been very clear publicly that they're planning to bring out a version two of the uh, QN technical framework and the common agreement that will support fire exchange. And I think they've said it's going to likely happen next year. There, there's been a fire roadmap published for quite some time that shows that that will be coming. So I think, you know, Don's, Don's concerns are, are valid, that, that, that we want to move towards fire as quickly as possible. I don't really share the opinion that there's no value in getting Tefka up and running before we're ready to exchange fire. It feels to me like it's just the latest version of the age-old debate about whether infrastructure is needed for exchange of health information. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, this sort of very early on national coordinators, Farzad Mastashari and pushing direct um, after there had been in the, um, you know, a bunch of funds that went out for health information exchanges, right? If you think about the high-tech funding the bulk of it went to, you know, purchase, you know, to enable the purchase of certified electronic health records to that where it was intended to ultimately facilitate exchange of health information. Some of the money also went to support infrastructure to, and there was a, a huge amount of debate at the time about whether we had made the, we had flipped the investment in the wrong way. Should we have, have instead been, been focusing on more investments in infrastructure to enable exchange versus you know, technology that, you know, that ultimately would, would, um, would not necessarily get exchange done necessarily on its own? So there's, there's always, always historically been among national coordinators differences of opinion on what's the best way to facilitate exchange. And this to me is just, you know, iteration number three, four, five. And, and we know that when um, Dr. Recker was the head of ONC, he didn't do very much to facilitate TEFCA as a voluntary network, notwithstanding language in, in high tech and, and the Cures Act with respect to establishing that network. And that this is something that um, Dr. Tripathi feels strong, more strongly about. So, um, you know, I, I, yeah, he's entitled to feel the way he feels. And if it gets us more quickly to, to fire exchange through networks, I think, you know, all the better, but we have this networked environment that has existed for a long time that wasn't connected to fire that was using different specs. Why, why would we not try to leverage what's there now, even as we migrate to fire because frankly those HIEs and HINs that are connected in through national networks today that are going to be the backbone of, of the TEFCA infrastructure in the future have been exchanging data this whole time 
successfully for their for their customers, just for a very narrow, mostly treatment only use case. So, um, at any rate, I just I'm not surprised. He he definitely has a viewpoint. He's entitled to it, but it just feels like again round three of an of of a long war that we have had about what's the best way to do this. And, yeah. and and working on TEFCA while we improve fire adoption seems to me to be to make a lot of sense because why why would we not continue to leverage infrastructure that we've already frankly built and spend I money think, on? I think sometimes when people say fire and, and this is, you know, Dave, please correct me as I say this. When people talk about fire, I don't think they always differentiate between the actual API and then the fire resources. Um, and I think that's important because a lot of times what I'm seeing are people want fire APIs because they're easier to implement there. So it's a low, you don't have to have as such, you don't have to have a big background in traditional IHE plumbing and implementing that, right? So fire APIs are easier to work with. Developers want to use them. And then what you get from a fire API, it could be fire resources. It could be CCDAs. It could actually be a fire wrapper and then there's XCA and XCPD in the background. So I think that there is, um, I think this concept of the current TEFCA roadmap versus the FIRE roadmap is going to, I mean, this is just where we're going. I, I agree with everything Devin just said about there was an opportunity to implement a FIRE roadmap if the person wanted to implement a FIRE roadmap originally. Uh, but I think it's a and it's interesting place to be creative with what does fire look like at scale, and uh, I'm excited to see what it looks like. I'm not optimistic that it's going to be fast. I think it's going to be a couple of years. You guys might know better than I do, but that's what I think. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I know that that certainly uh, the the current leadership at ONC wants it to be to be faster than a couple of years. Uh, we'll 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 certainly see if they're successful as as we've seen in in attempts to launch Firebase Exchange for care quality. Um, there there are some some thorny uh, considerations that continue to confound uh, care quality's efforts. There, uh, I, I do think that we'll we'll be able to see some experimental things at least uh, via Tufka. Uh, but uh, in, in terms of the wide range uh, of, of fire deployment between QHANs, and, and I'll come back to why I make that distinction here in a second, that that may, you know, th th there is some, still some work to be done there. It, it may take take some time into, into next year, as Stephen was saying, uh, even under their, their roadmap. Uh, but I, I said between QHANs. Uh, because that that to me is is what frustrates me the most about this whole fire and Tufka brouhaha. Um, people look at the QTF, uh, which defines the technical specifications for how you exchange uh, between the actual qualified inf health information networks. You can think of it as being how the low level nodes behind the scenes on the internet are communicating with one another or, or in the financial industry, what they're using and to say like, oh my goodness, they're using technology from the 1990s. Well, yeah, of course they are uh, because they're so fundamental and it would be so disruptive to change it that that why why fix what, what uh, isn't broken. Um, participants interacting with their QHANs on, on the, the, the other side of it 
Absolutely, we'll be using fire. Our customers certainly will. I, I can only assume that we are not the only ones uh, who will be interacting with our customers via APIs. Uh, and so we're we're translating that for them uh, into this low-level protocol, the, the IHE profiles that are used for document exchange between the QHANs. Uh, and then we're taking those documents, we're consuming them, and we can serve them up as documents or we can serve them up as fire resources. Uh, and again, I don't want to make it about our functionality. I assume it's not unique, but but this is exactly what the the Tufka infrastructure allows in terms of of lots of creative things that you can do between the QHAN and within the QHAN's community uh, that is then enabled on a grand scale by the the standard protocols, which again were put in place precisely because they were already adopted by those those health information networks that were going to become QNs. Um, so it, it's not that like there is no fire in the Tufka universe. Uh, the the fire is just done more at the QHAN level than uh, at the QHAN to QHAN level, if that makes sense. Um, so with that, uh, but, but keeping generally on the uh, Tufka topic. Uh, we recently saw uh, an announcement out of Epic uh, that uh, Kaiser Permanente, Johns Hopkins, uh, and, and 25 others, not to lump these others who I'm sure are prestigious organizations in their own right into the also rounds, but uh, a large number of organizations that use Epic uh, came out and indicated that they were going to uh, participate in, in the TEFCA, pledged to, to join essentially. Um, and uh, clearly, this is is a signal from Epic about their community. They they're beyond these organizations uh, that that have were part of this initial announcement. They're they're stating that they expect the majority of their community, uh, uh, extremely large majority, uh, two thousand hospitals, et cetera, in their announcement, uh, to uh, participate uh, in 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 a relatively short time frame. Um, so what what do we make of that signal from Epic in, in terms of what it it might mean for for Tefka overall? What what it it reveals about them? Any any thoughts that we have? I mean, I'll jump in. I mean, I think it's huge uh, as as a longtime Epic user myself uh, and and participant in the Epic community, focusing on advancing interoperability therein. I think having Epic on board, having Epic supporting uh, QHIN participate or TEFCA participation uh, is really going to drive the entire industry. Uh, I think that you know Epic was instrumental, you know, in helping to get care quality up and running. And once you know Commonwealth and the rest of the folks joined in, that that you know that really created the framework that we have today. And I think it's the same thing if you've got big players as we do, you know, with Epic and Commonwealth and eHealth and Health Gorilla and others. Others, you know, who are already participating in the existing exchange, having them publicly state an intention to bring their network participants over into TEFCA exchange, I think really is going to help TEFCA to gain the traction that, that we all hope it's going to gain. But I'll tell you what, the finalization of this enforcement rule and the fact that enforcement could begin, begins to, you, you have a table that is now set for, oh, you're a part of the TEFCA network. It's a per, you are permitted to respond to this. You've decided that local policy, you, you've set the bar higher. What's the justification for that? Right. And, and are, you know, is it, it, is it a reasonable justification for you to say no when the query otherwise meets 
what's been asked for from from the from from the common agreement and the and the and the underlying PMPs policies and procedures. And do we need to wait for TEFCA for those kinds of complaints to be registered, or could they no. be now under care equality? They could be registered now under care equality. I mean, once the rule goes into effect, it's like you had you had a query that came to you that met all the all the policy requirements that you know was lawful for you to respond to, and you chose not to. Why? Stephen, are we allowed to talk about our meeting today? Which one? The quality. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't think so. No. Okay, never mind. Scratch that from the tape. Um, well, uh, Jennifer, were you? I, and I, I might have missed the secret hand hand signal between you and Stephen. But were were you talking about the the care quality steering committee meeting or about something different? Yeah, it was. I, I mean, I, I I think that that the it, what 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 we're all mysteriously referring to is that uh, today the the care quality steering committee. Uh, uh, and I don't think this is is particularly secret, but I guess we'll we'll confirm before we put this out. But but the uh, the care quality steering committee approved uh, an update to its policies. This still does need to go through one additional uh, uh, hurdle uh, with the the care quality implementer community. But that I think is probably largely going to be uh, uh, a uh, a foregone conclusion. So, so the 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 policy updates that the care quality adopted did include some additional context around uh, the the patient request permitted purpose as it's framed in in the care quality parlance. And the big change, I think, is which is worth including is is shifting from saying that care quality uh, connections may respond to patient requests. Changing that to should respond to patient requests. That, no. that. ever closer, but not a must. <laughs> should not a must. And, no, yeah. And the way you know, I was pretty quiet on this approval process because honestly, I didn't feel like being the only one with a dog in the fight here. But the, um, I think that to what Devin just said, that will be interesting if that that policy goes into place and people start requesting making patient access requests and then still getting you know denied or no or whatever the answer is back in this in the message um how does that play in right how does health information networks i steven once corrected me he goes care quality is not a health information network it is a framework jenny and i was like okay noted but you know right. still if it's it's you know it's still a question well, I guess that's care equality's, you know, that that that's a statement that care equality makes about how it wants itself to be labeled. That is a different question from whether it meets the definition of a health information network under information blocking. But either way, I think that I am optimistic about patient access in general, but I think it needs people to, you know stomp their feet and bang on the wall and make a lot of noise for it to move forward. Um, when I think about the my the one record app and just like the hurdles that we overcame and you know we still have a lot of active users, people coming in every day. The other day our uh, MFA workflow wasn't working and we had all these people angry banging at the door being like, it's not taking my pin. So we have high intent users getting their data, right? 
I think that the more channels you open up to consumers to get their data, whether it's through a state HIE, like with what Devin's doing, or through a national network like Care Quality, or through a QHIN like Epic's QHIN, will Epic respond? We don't know yet. But I think it, uh, over time, I, I assume that there will be a point that they do respond because it will look really bad if they don't and everybody else, every other QHIN does. Like that's just the bottom line. That's bad PR. I think the Epic is smarter than that, right? Well, again, it's not, it, it won't be Epic doing the blocking. It would be the provider doing the blocking. Well, then we should have uh, HHS finish up those uh, penalties, right? That's the agency that needs to define them, Devin? Yes. Yeah, it's, um, but it doesn't mean that enforcement actions can't start. There's just no, there's just no question. There's a question about what then happens if OAG finds that, does an investigation of a provider, finds, believes they have an information blocking charge to sustain, and then, but there isn't sort of an end point to that. It will take some time. People, that's the other thing about procedure. You know, there's a due process piece to this, right? And, and OIG has a nice little diagram actually on their website about how this, you know, there's an investigation. OIG will decide if they think that there's information blocking or not. There's a lot of uh, back and forth with submission of documents and interviews and, you know, did you or didn't you? They have to figure out how they're applying the knowledge standard. And then, and then even if they get to the point where OIG says, well, we think you blocked, if there is a penalty on the table, they can issue the penalty, but then there are appeal rights associated with that. And I would imagine that some of these early cases may be appealed um, depending on the circumstances. And then if there isn't sort of a penalty on the table yet, they, you know, do they go into some sort of suspension pen, right? Well, you know, you not suspension from like practicing medicine or something, but like, we think you're information blocking. We don't have any penalties for you yet. So we're going to, we're going to hold you here and we're going to hold on to this investigation. And then once, once we figure out what your penalties are, we're going to refer you for those. Because the rules taking, in effect, yeah. Taking a break from Tefka, and I know we're, you know, we've been talking for a long time. Going back to the fire APIs and penalties that just dropped today, something that I found interesting with, you know, the 190 EHR vendors on the market is that a lot of them, one, aren't publishing their fire URLs, but two, when I talk to the vendors, a lot of their clients have abandoned their patient portals, so they're no longer paying for them and supporting them. So there is no way to do the three-legged OAuth workflow. There's literally no way for patients to get their data and authenticate. And I'm wondering when people start paying attention to that and the question of if providers and you know the rest of the EHR vendors on the market join Tefka, like it's going to have to be an IL2 workflow or they're gonna to have to enable some sort of additional portal to give a set of credentials to hit an authorization server. And, you know, I think the reason why uh, providers aren't supporting those patient portals anymore is one cost and then probably to the adoption rate. And there's no, you know, I don't think that MIPS or MACRA applies anymore. Like they don't get pinged for not having people hitting those patient portals. So you still have an identity problem in people accessing their data through the fire workflow. And it's a question of how does that come into Kafka at a certain point. I don't think that's in the next two years, but 
they're going to be collecting this information and they're going to have to make decisions going forward. And I do think it is a more simplistic workflow to query to a network to get your data instead of authenticating against multiple portals. Yeah. I, no, I, I I don't disagree. I I, I think that that we're most likely it, 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 to see success with some sort of login with Google kind of of concept where we all decide to trust the authentication that's done by somebody or some you know small set of certified entities, whatever the case may be, and then you know send tokens around. Uh, but but obviously there's there's more work to be done on that. Uh, but but once you do that, I, I'm I'm not quite sure what. Even if you take take everyone at at their word in terms of what they object to in in the IAL two stuff today, uh, I'm not sure what would remain to reasonably object to at that point, as long as there was was a were some good options to pick from. Yeah, because otherwise you're just back to a paper workflow. And why did you put all this funding in place to still be paper based? That rhymed. <laughs> Right, rhyming is a, is maybe a good thing to end on because uh, we we are at time. Uh, so let's wrap up there. Thank you as always, Stephen, Devin, and Jennifer, and we will see you next time.